know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to our podcast, COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. I want to remind our listeners that this is a rapidly evolving topic, so anything we discuss here today, by the time you listen to it, may have changed a little bit and may have changed significantly, so do be aware of that. My guest today is Keith Carlson, who has been a nurse since 1996, working in a variety of clinical settings, including home health, community health, case management, public health, hospice, and nursing education. Keith has also held management and executive positions, including chief nursing officer and director of nursing. Keith is a board-certified nurse coach under the auspices of the American Holistic Nurses Credentialing Corporation. He also holds previous certifications in Swedish massage, Kripalu yoga, and laughter yoga. Keith is a popular freelance nurse writer and blogger for a number of nursing websites and one print magazine. He has maintained an award-winning blog called Digital Doorway since 2005, and he has also been published in several nursing books. Keith is the host of a podcast, The Nurse Keith Show, which was launched in, in January 2015 and offers weekly nursing career advice, information, and inspiration for nurses and healthcare professionals who want to take their careers to the next level. In 2018, Keith served as host of Mastering Nursing, a one-season, 22-episode podcast providing high-level interviews with inspiring nurse thought leaders. He is also one of the founders and original co-hosts of RNFM Radio, a popular nursing podcast focused on nursing careers, nurse entrepreneurship, and nursing and healthcare innovation. Keith, thank you for joining me on the podcast. It sounds like you never sleep. Um, well, I am sleeping, and uh, it's highly recommended by nine out of ten doctors, and you just don't want to know what the tenth doctor recommends. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to let our audience know that you were the one who helped me figure out how to get started in podcasting in the first place after a mutual acquaintance put us in touch, so I want to thank you for that. Sure. I mean, you know, the podcasting was exploding, and our our mutual friend introduced us, and you and I had some chats, and I knew you had some really important things to say, so it was kind of a no-brainer to kind of just pass along whatever I knew, and I'm not an absolute expert, but you're doing an awesome job, and I'm I'm just proud of you for for jumping into the space. Well, thank you, and and your advice just getting started was super helpful, so I really appreciate it. Cool, and Besides we have what- and we have twin microphone setups. It's awesome. We do. I took your advice. (laughs) Um, Besides how I introduced you, is there anything else you would like the audience to know about yourself? Um, Well, I was bored in the house my father built. No, it's actually completely untrue. Um, Let me see. Um, Well, my work as a nurse career coach and coaching other healthcare professionals too, but preponderance of nurses is close to my heart because I don't work clinically anymore. I've been 100% self-employed for over three years. And, you know, there are times as a nurse entrepreneur who's non-clinician, I can feel a little 
wistful or maybe even a little shame for not being at the bedside, especially at this historic time. However, at the same time, I feel like, you know, we all have a role to play. We all have our capacity. Some people are raising their children and just keeping them safe. Some people are making food and some people are doing other much more dangerous work. So, you know, the front facing or public facing people at the grocery store are at risk too. So there's plenty of people doing their part and I'm just accepting in this moment. And I hope anyone else out there listening who is not doing clinical work or not doing anything specifically COVID related, it doesn't mean you're not contributing. So even helping the old lady across the street fill her med box, you're contributing. So don't, I just want to tell people, don't discount what you're doing, even if it's raising your kids and keeping your family afloat. And I didn't say just raising your kids because I think just is a four letter word. Right. Absolutely. And those small acts of kindness and focus towards community and society at this time are just exactly what we need. As I do these podcasts, I like to get a little bit of information about our guests and kind of how they got into their career fields, just to give the discussion some context. Sure. So can you tell our audience about how you decided on a career in nursing? Sure. I have a couple interesting stories, but I'll start with the fact that as a man in my 20s, I was a double art school dropout. I went to arts, two art schools in Philly and didn't survive either. And I eventually discovered massage, became a massage therapist, and then I discovered yoga, became a yoga teacher, and I did some laughter yoga too, which people are doing now to help others get through this, and laughter yoga actually has some scientific basis in the benefits of laughter. So I also, in my 20s as a young father, with only a high school diploma and a massage certification, realized there was something I needed to do more, and I was, you know, I was a private personal care aid for elders and things like that and worked with the developmentally disabled in group homes. And I just felt like, gosh, you know, I need to do more. And then it dawned on me that I had three nurses in the family on my dad's side. My eldest aunt, her lover and partner, she was a, she was lesbian uh, long before anyone even talked about it. And my other aunt, her younger sister, and <laughs> my oldest aunt's partner, Jan, always told these stories. And um, she was a really like hefty woman with a big raspy laugh and she was a card and pretty intense. And she would tell stories, honestly, about being General Patton's personal nurse or one of his nurses during World War II. And I remember those stories and whether they're true or not, I don't rightly know, but I like to believe they're true. And the best story of her that she's told and used to tell, she's been dead a long time, was that when Patton had hemorrhoids on the battlefield, she would have him soak his butt in his helmet. <laughs> so I, I often thank General Patton's derriere for inspiring me to become a nurse. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great story. So, thanks. I like to believe that's true. Awesome. <laughs> um, so we're hearing a lot of concerns about nurses and other healthcare professionals not having access to adequate personal protective equipment or what we call PPE. What are you hearing from your nursing community about this issue? Well, where do I begin? I was going to say, don't get me started, but you, you already put the key in the ignition. So, of course, I'm seeing the interviews on CNN and MSNBC with nursing leaders and also 
boots on the ground nurses who are saying, hey, you know, we're reusing masks, we're making improvised hacks to create face shields out of like plastic sheeting and duct tape. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous in the United States in the 21st century. So I'm hearing those on TV and on NPR. And I mean, I totally believe them because this is like right on the front lines. And at the same time, I'm not going to identify where anyone works, but I'll just tell some stories. So one nurse contacted me. She's somewhere in the United States. Let's just say that. She's a hospice nurse doing home visits and facility visits, and her hospice organization sent out an email saying, who's been fitted for an N95? And that was it. Like, that was over. End of conversation. And when people said, we haven't been, they said, well, we don't really have any anyway. So, and then I think they now have some, but they're not giving them to the nurses. And they're saying, you have to go to the nursing homes and assisted livings to assess every 14 days or Medicare is going to not pay us. And I told my friend, she was said, what do I do? I have a two year old at home and an older husband. And I said, you either rabble rouse, you make a list of demands and you say, this is what we want. This is what we demand. And if you can't do that, we're out of here. And they have a lot of leverage because there aren't a lot of people to hire and who's going to work for a place where you can't be protected. Then I heard from someone who works in an ICU in one of the epicenters in the United States. She's scared out of her wits, and it's it's a real, this ICU is very focused on coronavirus and other patients, of course, but she's scared, but she feels relatively protected and feels that they have it pretty buttoned up, pretty dialed in. So I feel okay about her, but I'm still worried because she's young, but still vulnerable because she's not that young. I also heard from another nurse somewhere in the U.S. who's delivering babies in a birthing center, and she is not protected. She said there's fluids flying everywhere. She doesn't know what kind of aerosolization is happening at any particular point because of all the different stuff that gets used here and there. Not much in the birthing, but this, is, this goes over to the NICU. You know, we're all in a grieving process. The world is in a grieving process, and, you know, the five stages. And I've been cycling through them like everyone else, like, thousand times a day. And I, about this nursing thing and the doctors and other healthcare providers without PPE or proper PPE, I go between incredible sadness and I'm absolutely apoplectic. Like I am just livid. So that's kind of where I'm living right now. And then trying to kick myself out of there because it's not a good place to live. Right. Yeah. I think if you just look nationwide and talking about healthcare in general, true lack of preparation for an event like this and providing our healthcare workers with the protective equipment they need is kind of the bare minimum expectation so that they can remain safe while they do their work. And we really have to think about this is that this virus goes both ways. And, and by not providing that protective equipment, it could be putting patients at risk too from you know transmission from one person to another so it, it really is a kind of a public health crisis it is a public health crisis of proportions we've never seen in our lifetimes to in my in my opinion and i mean i think we have to go back to 1918 to really dial this in in terms of how impactful this is i mean we've had ebola sars mars h1n1 hiv i worked in the hiv world in the 90s so you know 
the dismantle the dismantling of the pandemic uh, response team or whatever that was called that Obama set up the dismantling of that three years ago was a travesty and I think that is coming home to roost in a way that many many of us probably what we're expecting Right. And I I think we see that in action when you look at some of the Asian countries like South Korea that have dealt with other viral infections like SARS and MERS. And they had a system in place to deal with an upcoming pandemic. And that's why they were very quickly able to start testing 10 to 15,000 people a day. And our country, several weeks into this, is still struggling to get the tests for people who actually need it. I'm, that's another place where I am absolutely apoplectic. I was saying weeks ago that we should be testing thousands of people today. And I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not an infectious disease expert. I know some about HIV, but I've been out of that world for a while. However, just as a healthcare provider and a person who feels like I know something, um, I'm not an absolute expert, but the, the 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 logic or illogic of not doing massive testing, and I personally believe we should be doing a lot of random testing because in my opinion, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Ted, please disabuse me of anything I say, that if we do more random testing of people who are asymptomatic, people who are mildly, moderate, and severely asymptomatic, maybe we'll learn something about the course of this illness. And that's just me. And what do I know? Well, I I tend to agree with you, Keith, and I will phrase my response by saying I am also not an epidemiologist. I am not an infectious disease specialist. But if we had the capacity to be testing more people, that is probably the right answer so that we know who is infected and can put them on quarantine. Because we know that 70 to 80% of people who get the COVID-19 virus get very mild to sometimes no symptoms, and and they can be the real vectors transmitting this out in the community because they feel just fine. And so I tend to agree with your line of thought on that. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, So Keith, I'm interested in interprofessional education, and you and I have talked in the past about how physicians and nurses can work together more effectively in general. How do you think that we can be working together better on the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, I think it comes back to basic communication and the ways in which nursing and medicine have worked well and not worked well. So some of us know that there are strategies and techniques that have been used a lot over, I'd say, the last decade or so, especially the last five years, that can be very helpful in improving communication, intra-team communication and inter-team communication. And then we need inter and intra facility and health system communication. So we can start with the nurse and doctor standing in the nurse's station having a conversation. And then we throw a a pebble into that pond and then we can watch the ripple effect, right? So I've been a really big advocate for the development of emotional intelligence, behavioral intelligence, and relational intelligence in healthcare at the individual level and also at the widely systemic level. I've also been an advocate because I have friends who are absolute national or international experts in this 
in medical improv. Some people might think this is silly, but it's been shown to be extremely effective in helping break down barriers and help people to be more vulnerable and also learn how to listen. So it's not about entertainment. It's not about laughter. I mean, laughter can result from improv because it can be fun. But there's a lot of literature out there. I can't say it's peer-reviewed or anything like that, but there's anecdotal and there's literature, literary evidence that it works. And even, you know, Alan Alda, who was, you know, Hawkeye in the TV show MASH that many may remember, um, he has a center called the Alda Center for Communication. I'm not sure you're aware. And he focuses on training medical and healthcare professionals on communication, including medical improv, but many, many other techniques and strategies. And they're working, their experts are working with healthcare professionals around the world. And his podcast called Clear and Vivid, it's specifically about communication and connection. And he doesn't focus on disease or medicine, but the things that he talks about through humor and also through intellectual conversation is very enlightening about communication. So there's lots of things we could say about this communication universe, but I think there are some basic strategies, techniques, and ways of thinking that can improve communication. Right. I, I was not aware of that Alda Foundation, so I will have to check that out. Um, what I will tell you is I have been to a leadership program that incorporated improv as a way to help with listening and communication, and it was one of the best programs I've ever been to. So I agree with you wholeheartedly about that idea of, of improv and just some of the techniques yes. that they use to, to really drive. It's actually even more about listening, I think, than it is about the verbalization component. Yeah. And one of the cardinal rules in, in my world of communication and in some improv teachers' canon of techniques and strategies is the saying that we have two ears and one mouth for a reason, that we listen twice as much as we talk. And if doctors and nurses and other healthcare providers and administrators and executives would remember why they have two ears and one mouth, I think we could make some very good headway. And I just want to give a plug, if you don't mind. Can I do a shameless plug for a friend? You can. Okay, so my friend Beth Boynton, B-O-Y-N-T-O-N, she is an expert in medical improv and communication techniques, and she lives in, in, Maine, in New Hampshire. And a lot of this can be done online through Zoom. And my other friend, Dr. Candy Campbell, she is also an expert, and Candy and Beth often work together. So they've been working with healthcare providers and organizations for quite some time. And my friend Renee Thompson, Dr. Renee Thompson, she runs the Healthy Workforce Institute, and she's helping rebuild community communication, onboarding, precepting, and culture from the ground up with some of the largest healthcare systems in the country whose names shall remain unnamed at this moment. So those are three high-powered nurses doing incredible work in the world. Shameless plugs. <laughs> it, it really, well, it's work that needs to be done because communication is at the heart of good patient care and ensuring patient safety and then has all the other components of it about professional respect and 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 just working well together. But at the heart of it, that communication ensures as much patient safety as we possibly can. So Keith, I've been listening to some of the recent episodes of your podcast where you discuss some really interesting topics about COVID-19. And I'd like to go through a few of those here for our audience. Um, the first is kind of related to my previous question about interprofessionalism and the need for teamwork in the face of COVID-19. 
What would you say about that beyond doctors and nurses trying to just work well together? Well, there's the working well together and care coordination and making sure our patient care coordination is as seamless as it could possibly be. And then there's the the physical working together, the scrub nurse and the circulating nurse with the surgeon in the operating suite, or in England, they would say the, the surgical or operating theater, I believe, because I'm sure you have listeners in the UK or Australia. There's this importance for maintaining calm and professionalism, no matter matter the level of stress that we're all feeling. And one thing we need to remember in the face of COVID-19 is what I mentioned at the very top of the show is the fact that the entire world, every single, I would say almost every single citizen in this world, if they're not keeping their head under a rock that, or under the blankets because they just can't face this, well, that actually, no, I'm going to retract that because if they have their head under the blankets, they're in the denial stage. And we have to remember that that surgeon has a family at home. She or he may have a mother in a very high-risk category living in assisted living that's locked down. And Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. He or she hasn't seen their mom in two months and now can't. That nurse may have a husband at home. And this is a friend of mine I'm speaking of actually somewhere here in the U.S. who has a particular type of cancer that he has been undergoing treatment for for the last two years and is in and had a bone marrow transplant and is doing quite well. However, they live in a big city where there is an epicenter, which is an epicenter of this virus. And she is so scared that they've spent two years building him up and getting him back to functionality and relatively good health. But because of the bone marrow transplant that was only about four months ago, he has... I, I, you could probably tell me, Ted, I don't know. He has the immune response of, I think, probably a, a small child in terms of the development of his immune system. So you have to consider, you have to consider what's happening behind the mask, behind the stethoscope behind the lab coat. You know, what is going on in that person's life? And if that person seems a little off, what what's really going on? So if you can take a deep breath and say, okay, Linda, I notice you're, you seem to be very anxious today. Um, is there something you want to unload with me before we go into the operating room so that we can clear this and you can, you can stay focused with me and we can do the best job we possibly can? We have to remember the humanity of the person behind the mask. And if we can do that, I think that could have an enormous impact on the ways in which we work together and are successful in our patient care. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I would even expand on that idea of recognizing the humanity in someone where, you know, if you're at the grocery store and there's a long line and somebody's fuming, 
They're probably dealing with something at home, something in their lives that's making that happen. Parking lots, you know, we're seeing little, we're seeing a lot of kindness and and occasional flares of temper. And, and I think just trying to remember that humanity is a good message for everyone. Absolutely. And related to this idea of kind of the interprofessional um, work that we do, do you see opportunities for changing workflows so that we can be more effective in addressing COVID nineteen? Well. Again, I'm not an active clinician, and I've, I'll, I'm very honest about this publicly that I've never worked in the acute care setting. I made a choice to not do that after nursing school, which I was told was professional suicide, which is completely untrue. That's another conversation. Um, in terms of workflows, I believe this also come back, comes back to communication, and I'll explain why. And you probably already know, but I'll say it anyway, that Let's say a device is created for bedside use, but no nurse who would actually use that device was consulted about its design and the interface for the use of that, whether it's the digital interface or it's actually the user experience like pressing the buttons. So at that very basic level, we need to know and we need to understand and accept that clinicians need to be involved from the ground up from the design of bedside devices or non-bedside devices. And then when extrapolating that out to actual workflows, which I can't speak to because I'm not there, but in a general sense, if a nurse comes to a nursing director or medical supervisor or director and says, look, I see the way we're doing this particular thing in terms of how we're treating COVID-19 patients when they first come in and we identify they're positive. And I think if we tried X, Y, or Z that my friend is doing at her ICU in New York, maybe we could do this little workaround and it might work. Um, because I'm a big fan of and promoter of the, the concept of intrapreneurship. Are you familiar and do you talk about intrapreneurship? I am not, no. Okay. So everybody knows what entrepreneurship. I'm a nurse entrepreneur. I work at home. And thanks to the French, we have that really beautiful word. So <laughs> it's a lovely word and it's fun to say. So instead of I'm a business owner, you can say I'm an entrepreneur. So an intrapreneur it's an employee who takes ownership of their position. It doesn't mean that they do things willy-nilly because they think it's right and they tell their manager later. It's that they go to their manager and say, hey, I've been thinking dot, 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 or hey, I have this really cool workaround we might try. And an entrepreneur isn't a person who shows up at work, does their thing, goes home, and then just waits for their paycheck. An entrepreneur, of course, needs to make money and feed their family, and, but an entrepreneur has curiosity. They have initiative. They're willing to innovate. They're willing to take moderate risks as long as those risks are run by the people who need to approve them before they're taken and often have incredible ideas. And if their managers go back to that saying that there's two ears and one mouth for a reason, the manager will say, wow, um, Bill, that is a really interesting idea. Let's put a committee together and talk about it. Let's run a tabletop exercise and see if that would really work. Let's get out the whiteboard and see, could we really do this? 
And if we promote, welcome, and accept the concept of intrapreneurship, I think innovative things can happen in workflows. So, you know, I'm not a clinician. I don't understand what actually, how an ICU works on the day-to-day level, what a nurse does here, there, and everywhere. However, it all comes down, I think, to two ears, one mouth, listening, communication, curiosity, and being able to say, hey, I have an idea. Yes. And for then the leadership to listen to that and and even encourage more ideas. Um, Keith, one of the other topics that you cover on your podcast is a social justice topic that I am very interested in um, and a topic related to the impact of COVID-19 on children and the working poor. And in your discussion, you focused on access to food for children who would normally rely on school meal programs to be fed, and also about the working poor losing their jobs and not being able to buy food. Would you mind giving us some of your thoughts about this topic? Absolutely. I'm, I've am i always been interested in social justice. I've always been sort of a armchair activist, though I've also done some activism and advocacy outside my house, for sure, in this country and other countries. This is how I would frame it. I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico. It's a town of 85,000-ish people. The Santa Fe County is about 150, 160,000 people. This is one of the least populated states per square mile in the country in one of the poorest states in the country. We have 3.5 million people in the entire state, and it's a big state stretching from the southern border of Colorado to the northern border of Mexico. So that's the context. So here in Santa Fe, there's an enormous disparity between the rich and poor. People have always said historically there's no middle class here, but that's completely untrue. All of my friends are middle class for the most part. A few are upper middle class. On the south side of Santa Fe, we have mostly, for the most part, majority Mexican population. Most are, are legally here, and we have a lot of undocumented people. And here's my concern. All the schools in New Mexico have been closed for two weeks now. So we closed them pretty quickly. And schools... School lunches and school breakfasts and sometimes school dinners for after-school programs can be the only nutritious meals kids get. So I believe right now in Santa Fe, they're trying to do this meal distribution, but the parent has to have all the kids who need a meal in the car. They have to show up for breakfast, sit in their car in line, get the meals, not for the parents, just the kids, drive home, and then come back for lunch, uh, wait in line in a long line of cars again, get that, and then go home. So let's, can I go on a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. Let's say mom is a housekeeper at La Fonda Hotel, which is on the plaza where a lot of people stay. At that hotel, there's been a hotel on that spot since the 1700s, maybe even the 1600s. And um, there's no guests. So mom is out of work. And dad, let's say, is a line cook, dishwasher, or prep at a restaurant downtown, maybe the Coyote Cafe. They're closed. So he's home. The uncle lives with them. He's undocumented. He's from Chihuahua. They're all from Chihuahua. So they have cell phones. They have no internet access. So the kids can't access online education because it doesn't really work with a cheap mobile phone. They have no access to credit and no credit cards. They have maybe, let's say, let's be generous, $300 in savings in in a savings account or under the mattress. And they have $125 in the checking account. If they're driving back and forth five days a week to pick up meals for the kids, that's a lot of gas and a lot of time, and a lot of exposure. And what if uncle gets sick with a dry cough and a fever or diarrhea and abdominal pain, and they're like, let's go get you checked out. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. 
if I test positive, they're going to deport me. And then what do I do? Because he says my family, you know, my 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 brother in Chihuahua is actually COVID positive and I don't want to go there. So there's I just named like, I think, five very significant issues. And a lot of the stores are getting bare. So what are these people going to do? We have in Santa Fe, we have a homeless person on almost every major intersection asking for food, work or support. So I grieve and worry over this every single day. And I carry boxes of granola bars in my car so that I can give somebody at least a snack. And a lot of the homeless folks here have dogs. So I also have a a thing of dog treats. So I give them some dog treats and I might buy a bunch of cans of dog food to give to them too. So we can't save everyone. I mean, each of us can't save everyone, but I worry about this every single day and I don't know what to do. Yeah, Keith, and and I think the important thing to emphasize is regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, this is not a political issue. This is a public health issue. And and all of those factors that you talked about feed into this and can affect the health of our communities. And and so they are things that we need to deal with and they're bigger picture items, um, but really, really important to be talking about. Um, I also want to talk on about another topic that you covered on your podcast, and that is the topic of why airports are still open and planes are still flying when we're all trying to practice social distancing. And in many areas, people are even being told to shelter in their homes like we are here in California. Um, what are your thoughts about the the airplanes and airports? Oh my gosh. So I think it was about a week ago, maybe a little longer. Um, I think it was, it might've been last Tuesday. President Trump held a press conference with all his team, you know, um, don't get me started on that, but he made the announcement finally. And it's actually, I'm going to, I'm going to really divulge my political leanings here. I'm sorry. It was the first time I've been absolutely grateful for something he said. And he said, no more than 10 people in any given place in at any given time for any reason. And I was, I said, thank you. Thank you. And And I couldn't believe I was saying it, but I did. I was really grateful. So after that, I turned on MSNBC from CNN and they were showing videos of airports. And there were, I would say, tens of thousands of people cheek by jowl, touching everything, using bathrooms, eating in cafes, having beers, coughing, sneezing. Um, And then you think about the TSA agent who has diarrhea, doesn't think it means COVID because he doesn't know. And he washes his hands, but he's still positive. He's wearing gloves, but he touches his mouth. He touches his eyes, he picks his nose, and then he decides to open a suitcase and puts his hands on every object in that suitcase and then hands it back to the person once it goes through the conveyor belt. What is wrong with this picture? Also, once people get through the six to eight hour wait to get through TSA, coughing all over each other, not practicing social distancing, they go to the cafe and restaurant and bathroom. And then what do they do once they get through that? They get on a plane. (laughs) And a lot of people are this makes me livid going on vacation. I just was texting with a friend last night who is in Hawaii, and she said she felt like Hawaii was doing okay, but she said you would not believe how many tourists are here, and I didn't know what to say. So if we tell people no more than 10 people in in any given place at any given time and shelter in place and be careful, but we're not closing the airports, it's absolutely egregious and it makes everything we're doing marginally useful. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You're just actually 
increasing the footprint where vectors can travel and spread COVID-19 from community to community. And we do know there are communities like in New York where there are more people that are infected. And, and, and that's the idea is to try to contain that. And people flying on planes is doing exactly the opposite. Right. And then think about the TSA agents going home. Think about the flight attendants on those airplanes for hours and hours and hours and hours. Then they have to leave and go to a hotel or Airbnb and they might have diarrhea and not know that that's a sign. And they, you know, they're talking about washing hands. I have not seen anything on the news specifically. I've seen YouTube videos. But when you tell some, when you tell the average citizen to wash their hands, they put their hands in prayer position and rub them together for 20 seconds singing happy birthday. Are we saying take your thumb, put it in your palm, surround your thumb with your whole hand, rotate around your thumb, web, put the webs of your fingers together, put one hand on top of the other, go up to the wrist crease. I don't hear that message at all. I hear Dr. Fauci saying, wash your hands in those press conferences with President Trump. What does washing your hands actually mean? And if, if we don't have public service announcements I mean, I'm seeing commercials for Revlon, Ford, Chevy, you know, stupid stuff on TV. We should be having public service announcements on every TV channel for free, showing proper hand washing technique, how to keep your kids safe, you know, what to do when you get home with groceries. If we're not doing that, we are, we're really, we're, we're perpetuating this issue. And I, I can go on. I have a couple other ideas, but I'm going to let you speak. <laughs> I was just going to say is you're exactly right. We're not doing this adequately from a public education standpoint. And that was really the goal of this podcast is to be having these conversations to try to educate the public about this topic of COVID-19 and public health and how diseases are spread so that we're providing a really credible resource from trusted experts um, and, and trying to overcome some of the lack of education that is happening in the media and even the misinformation that's being spread. So yes, I appreciate you saying that. Yes. Um, Keith, the last thing I wanted to ask you about before we wrap this up is I just recently heard someone suggest that we ask nurses and doctors to come out of retirement to try to help with the increasing need for patient care. In my mind, that's um, a noble thought, but highly dangerous as this is a population at higher risk given their older age and likely chronic medical conditions. What are your thoughts on on asking nurses to come out of retirement to, to help with this crisis? Well, honestly, you make a very good point there. And they can come out of retirement. They don't have to be doing front-facing patient care. There's leadership, there's informatics, there's telephone triage, there's telehealth. We should have massive nursing triage and telehealth centers set up around the country, or we should be setting up those retired nurses to work in their pajamas from home with a cup of coffee and the kitty cat in their lap doing telephone triage and education of consumers all over the country. If we got every retired doctor and nurse out of retirement, set them up with a laptop and a phone if they don't have one, or a Chromebook or an iPad, 
And we had them, basically, we could have them making random phone calls, not, well, no one has phone books anymore, but we could do what, you know, I've worked on political campaigns. And when we work on political campaigns, what do we have? We have a telephone list of voters, registered voters, in every district of the country, in every state. We could be giving those lists to retired doctors and nurses to saying, hey, here's your script, here are the questions you might respond to, here's a book or a PDF or an online resource, here are the responses you give, here are the resources you give. We could be making millions and millions of telephone calls per day. No one is talking about that. So those retired nurses and doctors can have incredible functions, but they won't even have to leave their home. And can I, I have two more ideas I'd like to share, but I also know that we have to wrap. No, I would say go ahead and share those. I I just really like how you contextualize the, the ideas for the retired nurses and physicians, because when I heard that comment, I, my thoughts immediately turned to direct patient care. But as you said, yeah, telemedicine, telehealth, leadership, you know, uh, there's all kinds of other things that they could be doing that wouldn't put them at higher risk of getting infected. Absolutely. But go ahead. We asked Apple and Dell to donate 5 million laptops. I bet we could get them probably tomorrow. I bet. But here's two more things I just thought of that I haven't thought of these yet, and I'm going to share them now. And my wife and I were just kind of getting into this last night before bed. One, if anyone listening out there works for the companies that um, um, control or own billboards around the country, I, I can't remember the names of the big billboard companies, but you've seen the names at the bottom of every billboard. Clear Channel is one of them, I think. Clear Channel. Yeah. If Clear Channel worked with the CDC and NIH and WHO and every single billboard in this country had a public health message. We had a coordinated public health message output system on every billboard and public sign in this country, especially billboards in Spanish and other languages where we tell them undocumented, don't worry, please come get checked and tested. If we used billboards and television commercials and radio commercials, we could reach so many people. Imagine all the Hispanic or the Latinx people in this country who watch Univision and the other Spanish language television. Imagine if nothing was charged for these advertisements or the government paid for the advertisements and we reached people on that massive level, imagine the education we could do. Now, one more thing. If anyone from the FAA happens to be listening or a director of LaGuardia Airport or BWI or PDX or LAX, please make the decision. If the government won't do it, shut your airport down. And I cannot emphasize that enough. And if I was king of the world, which would probably be fairly problematic, um, those would be shut down tomorrow. Not that I don't want people to get home to their loved ones, but this is just too much for us to, to allow. And one more thing. If anyone works for the government in terms of the highway system, the interstate highway system, I believe, wasn't necessarily originally thought of as transportation for vacation. I believe, please mistake me if I'm wrong, anyone out there, it was built for the movement of government and military information and and vehicles and for the movement of things around the country under duress. I think that was post-World War II, maybe. So this might sound horrible. If we shut down the interstate system for nothing but the transportation of goods, services, military operations, and the disbursement of military and National Guard personnel, 
and essential services and doctors and nurses moving between states, I think we could have a massive mobilization of everything we need to make this pandemic come under slightly more control. And that's the end of my diatribes. <laughs> All right, Keith. Well, I want to thank you for being on the show today and lending your thoughts and your expertise to our audience. It's always nice to have um, people in fields that are different than my own lending their thoughts on this. So I appreciate your time. I, I wish you health and safety during this pandemic. And um, just thank you for being on the show. Thanks, Ted. The same to you and yours. Thanks, Keith. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant but remain calm. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.